This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, November 21st, 2014. I'm Caleb Brown. It may be hard for some to admit, but fossil fuels drove the innovations and dramatic increases in standard of living for hundreds of millions of people around the world in the latter half of the 20th century. So says Alex Epstein in his new book, The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. We spoke today. So there's two things. What do we normally hear about fossil fuels and then how do we normally think about fossil fuels? And I think the the mistakes in what we normally hear are not really mistakes of fact so much as mistakes of of methodology or thinking. So the dominant thing we hear about fossil fuels is captured by George W. Bush's metaphor of addiction. We're addicted to fossil fuels. And, And that idea is that fossil fuels are something that's convenient now, that feel good now, but in the future are going to destroy us. In particular, they're going to destroy our environment. They're going to destroy the very livability of our planet through some combination of resource depletion, pollution, and especially uh, catastrophic uh, climate change. And kind of what's interesting about this whole narrative, uh, there are a couple things, but one is that it's an old narrative. It's not a new narrative. It's a narrative where even the key thinkers in it today, people like Al Gore, Bill McKibben, James Hansen, Paul Ehrlich, have all been making the same basic catastrophic predictions for 30 or 40 years. And as I, I talk about in, in chapter one, the secret history of fossil fuels, they've been spectacularly wrong. Every every way in which they predicted human life would get worse, uh, it gets better. And that, that we can discuss some of the, the concretes there. But whenever that happens, whenever you have such a bad track record, uh, it, there's a question of methodology. What's wrong with their thinking? And that needs to be answered before you even consider listening to them again. Your argument then is fossil fuels have set the stage for dramatic improvements in human well-being. Well, I mean, they, they've driven it. I mean, so ener- you know, energy is, is the thing that drives machines and, and our civilization has driven life forward via machines. And if you look at 300 years ago, 200 years ago, uh, before modern industrialized life, we have to do all the physical work ourselves and we uh, – you know, we it does not go well for us. You know, we're very weak physically, relatively speaking. We use about as much energy as a 100-watt light bulb does every day. And this is just not enough work to sustain a standard of living that we consider uh, acceptable. So that's why you have very low life expectancy, high infant mortality. You know, agriculture is a mess. You're at the mercy of the elements uh, all the time. It's hard to get clean water because you can't move it. You can't purify it. Um, life is just rough until we can figure out how do we get machines to do our work for us. And for that to happen, you need to have energy, you need to have calories for those machines to do as much as possible. So the more machine calories, the more people can have, the better life will be. And fossil fuel energy is the only form of energy that has demonstrated the ability to do that for billions of people. And this whole discussion of catastrophe and addiction, one of the methodological issues is it ignores that. It ignores the almost definite fact of energy catastrophe if we pass these restrictions, and yet it puts all the weight on the risks and side effects, which is always a bad way of thinking to not look at uh, benefits, but only look at risks and side effects. Don't you think, though, there's an implicit understanding on the part of uh, lawmakers and the public that dramatic restrictions on the use of fossil fuels would yield some fairly serious consequences? I mean, we haven't seen, at least in this country, too many serious 
uh, and painful restrictions on the use of fossil fuels. Well, I, this is an interesting point of who understands the issue and who's, who's really our protection against it. I think the public has a much better implicit, but it's important that it's only implicit, understanding of the recklessness, to say the least, of the dramatic uh, restrictions that are called for. But if you look at intellectual elites, if you look at elite entities such as the UN, but also you know major uh, you know scientific bodies like the American Physical Association and other kinds of uh, associations, it's amazing the extent to which they call for things like 50% cuts in fossil fuel use. This is in a world where three billion people have virtually no energy uh, right now, and these are policies that demonstrably, if they had been implemented 30 years ago when people were also asking for them, would have prevented the rise of China and India. So in terms of the elites, in terms of the people also who are taking the moral high ground the most, massive restrictions are considered obvious. Now, uh, let's talk about that. China, India, other countries, and the three billion people that you're talking about. Over the last 50 years, uh, the world has cut uh, serious grinding poverty virtually in half. And we've seen uh, burgeoning middle classes in both China and India. To what extent have, have fossil fuels fed that growth? Uh, well, you know, in in, um, in the first chapter of the book, again, secret. I, may, I might have not mentioned that actually. Secret history of fossil fuels. I just mentioned that because anyone who wants to check it out can go to moralcaseforfossilfuels.com and, and read it, read it for free. And part of the you know one thing I wanted to show in that chapter is how much. China and India have increased their use of fossil fuels as their life expected their life expectancy as their GDP have skyrocketed. So both of them in the last 30, 40 years have increased coal use by a factor of five. I mean, think about that, a factor of five. That is that is massive. And at the time, people like Paul Ehrlich and Emery Lovins were saying, the world already uses too much electricity. We need to restrict fossil fuels. They were saying that back then. And if you look at what's, what's uh, caused them to rise, it's not as if it's some incredibly obscure connection between that and energy that requires amazing powers of deduction. I mean, it's things like factories. It's things like having light bulbs in your homes, air conditioners in your homes, being able to actually manufacture things to be more productive, everyone moving from rural areas to city areas. Uh, being Ultimately, what energy is doing is it's increasing our productive uh, capacity, and that is what makes us wealthy. When I have discussions with people who are generally opposed to the use of fossil fuels, they can see uh, certain effects and I think they take the benefits, these massive improvements in human well-being and human development that we've seen over the over the last half of the 20th century. Uh, they take those uh, they take those for granted, and they take those as given. Uh, and, and I assume that they believe that those things will not be threatened by uh, dramatic reductions or price increases for fossil fuels. Yeah, and you know this this point. I think that I, I had a similar mentality at one point, and this is a lot of what drove me to get into the field. I remember when I first studied the history of oil, and I, I think it's always valuable to study the history of fields because you really get a sense of the before and after, how much better life gets, and you also understand better the mechanism, what kinds of things have to happen to make a transition from a low energy society to a high energy society. In the case of oil, it was fascinating because I had been taught, you know, oh, we just used to use whale oil, and then they ran out of whale 
shales and now we use uh, petroleum. But really, no, there were more than six major competitors in the market to illuminate people's homes. But still, most people's homes were dark. I think of it like those satellite images of North Korea that you see, you know, where it's just dark at night. And the reason is because it's not enough to be, it, the reason is it's not enough to produce energy to be able to make it work in a lab. It's to produce it affordably and reliably and scalably. And what the oil industry did is it came up with a process using this glop that people had thought was useless, but figuring out how to refine it efficiently, how to transport it efficiently, how to drill for it efficiently, um, you know, how to bring it to market efficiently. And John D. Rockefeller is one of the great geniuses here. And so they brought down the price of illumination from, it used to be $3 a gallon and $18.59. I mean, think about that. That's just so expensive. Um, and brought it down you know, to around $0.08 cents a gallon so that it would be it, the countryside was lit up. And actually, a lot of that just happened within five years of the industry. So that really impressed me with, we need to just not talk about energy, but talk about cheap, plentiful, reliable, scalable energy, and understand that that is a massive achievement that to this day, only one industry has been able to pull off on a global scale, and that only two others can do it all. That would be nuclear and hydro. And so when we're talking about energy, treat it as wow, this is an amazing achievement and to equal it or even to come close to equal it would take an amazing thing. Don't assume that, oh, we'll put some solar panels on a roof and everything will be fine. To what extent do you think that the technological innovations and improvements in humanity that fossil fuels have helped drive will then set the stage for discovering something better? Well, I think you can see that already. That that constantly happens. So one think about how we think of oil. We tend to think of oil as this monolithic thing and we're using oil like as if we chose to marry oil, like oil is this person or this thing that we've sort of committed to. But that's not true at all. I mean, we have machines that use oil-based fuel, although it's interesting much of that fuel can, with certain technologies and at certain prices, be derived from coal uh, and natural gas. But really, we're using oils. There's all sorts of different kinds of resources underground. And what we're doing every day is deciding really, or every time we buy a car, is is getting those different oils, is using those the most efficient thing, or is using something else? And what you see is, is that the oil industry is creates its own competition. Uh, in part, it, it's created fracking, which we've seen has now driven prices down. But it's also created an amazing amount of natural gas, which is now becoming more of an automotive fuel competitor. And be, so, what it's doing is there's always this there's always this need for more energy. And what every the more time you have with cheap, plentiful, reliable energy, the more time you have and the more incentive there is for people to discover new things. So the main thing, one of the main things energy as such buys us is time. So if you care about nuclear, which for instance, I'm very passionate about, you care about hydro, if solar and wind had, I think, a lot more promise than they do, but whatever, um, you should be, you should realize that fossil fuels are the basis for thinking about and conceiving of those. And also, particularly in the case of these resource intensive solar and wind projects, as Mark Mills put it once on my, uh, Mark Mills, really brilliant energy guy on my podcast, this would be one of the greatest fossil fuel uses of all time to build these things because you can't build a windmill with a windmill. Alex Epstein is author of The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. You can read more on energy and human progress at humanprogress.org and cato.org.